You're listening to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation with me, Annabelle Bly. This episode is all about confidence. I have confidence in sunshine. I have confidence in rain. I have confidence that spring will come again. Besides which you see, I have confidence in me. Yes, that's the young and gutsy novice nun Maria from the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic, The Sound of Music. Maria's on her way through the streets of Salzburg to the Von Trapp family mansion to look after seven unruly children and is quite understandably nervous. So not least because it's a musical, she starts to sing. We've all been there, not necessarily skipping through the streets of Salzburg, but on our way to the first day of a new school or a job interview. And confidence is that elusive thing that gets us through the door. In this episode of The Ant Hill, we will be digging into the concept of confidence, from the extent that it can and can't get us ahead in the workplace, to how confidence tricksters fool people into falling for their scams, with some heartbreaking consequences. First up, though, our producer Gemma Ware spoke to two researchers to find out how scientists actually define confidence and how it works in the brain. I'm going to ask you a question. True or false? In poker, a full house beats a flush. Now, how confident are you in your answer? Put a percentage on it. Anywhere between, say, 50% confident to 100% confident. If you answered true, then you're right. A full house, that's three cards of one rank and two of another, does beat a flush, which is five cards of the same suit. But it's how sure you are about your answer that's interesting particularly to those scientists keen to understand how confidence works and the way people communicate it. This is one of a hundred questions from an online confidence calibration test designed to work out the relationship between a person's confidence and whether they're right. Now, I clearly need to brush up on my poker rules because when I sat down to do the full test, I got that question wrong and worryingly, I was 70% sure that I'd got it right. To find out more about these tests and what my results mean, I called up Eva Krokow, a research associate in health sciences and psychology at the University of Leicester, who studies confidence. That general knowledge test that you did is actually quite a common thing to do in order to put a number on your confidence and to see whether you are what we call well calibrated. So whether your confidence actually matches your real knowledge. So basically for each statement, you had a 50% chance of whether or not you were going to be correct. Now, we would really hope <laughs> that you would receive a percentage score of correct answers of higher than 50%. And I believe that's actually correct because you, you received, I think, 66%. Yeah, so my you, actual Gemma? correct percentage was 66%. Yeah. So first of all, that's really good news for your general knowledge. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it shows that uh, your results are better than guesswork. So, of course, you had to give a confidence rating, which is, a, in the end of the day, it's quite a, a subjective rating. Yeah, so I had to say whether I was between 50 and 100% confident that is correct. with my answer. Because the, the number 50 was given because... 50% would have been correct just based on pure guesswork because it was a true or false question. And then you had that range between 50% and 100 with 100 super absolutely confident and 50% just giving it a go and, and having a random guess. Now, your confidence score, your mean score was uh, 74%. 74%. So it indicates that you were pretty, pretty confident uh, most of the time. 
So it was definitely above guesswork what you were doing, or at least you thought so when you were completing the questions. But there's a gap between my mean confidence and my actual correctness. So that's 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 quite a big gap, isn't it? That's exactly the really interesting point here. So we basically look at this gap to then evaluate whether you are either overconfident or underconfident. Now, in your case, Gemma, I'm afraid to to say (laughs) that your mean confidence score is above your actual percentage score of the correct answers, which means that you're slightly overconfident. Okay. Um, That is not necessarily a a massive gap, or you don't need to be extremely worried about this, but it is something that maybe you want to consider in the future. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll take that into consideration. We'll hear a bit more from Eva a bit later, and some experiments she's been doing to test the way people communicate their confidence. But first, let's go back to basics. I asked Dan Bang, a postdoctoral research associate at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging at UCL in London, how scientists actually define confidence. Confidence, it has many definitions and it's been defined in many ways over the years. But I think an emerging consensus, at least a working definition of confidence, is that it's some graded feeling or graded sense of the probability or the likelihood that a belief is correct. So, for example, you might have a belief that you will be able to cross the street before an oncoming car would hit you. And that might be associated with a sense of the probability that that's going to happen. It's, it's about taking all kinds of information, integrating them into some kind of um, summary estimate, if you like, that sort of describes how likely it is that that belief you hold or the decision that you made is to be correct. This is different from a person's general feeling of confidence in themselves as they go about their lives or in a social situation, though we'll come to that a bit later. It's more akin to a mathematical, statistical computation that's going on subconsciously in our brains. To explain this further, Dan gave the example of a tennis line judge. So imagine that you're a tennis line judge and and what you have to do is to tell whether the ball was in or out. Now... The surf might have a certain speed. It might be a very fast surf or it might be a slow surf. If it's a very fast surf, it's going to be more difficult for you to say exactly where the ball landed. But the ball can be far away from the line or close to the line. So that's another feature of that choice you're going to make. So one feature is the speed of the ball and another feature is how far away the ball is from from the line that you are responsible for. And these two kinds of estimates, once you've made the choice, let's say you say, oh, the ball was out, then you have to take these different pieces of information, bring them together into a single sense of confidence. So one feature of it might be your knowledge of the situation, because maybe you have experienced before then that when surfs are fast, you're more likely to get that choice wrong. So you want to also take into account that prior experience when you compute your sense of confidence. But that's a separate kind of information from confidence, if you like. Dan and his team wanted to understand what was going on in the brain when people had to make decisions like this. So they lay a bunch of people down in an MRI scanner, gave them a task and looked at their brains. So the way that the task actually works is that you see a cloud of dots and they can move in any direction. So they can move upwards, downwards, to the left or to the right, or they can move diagonally. The image went away and they were shown a reference line and asked whether the dots moved above or below this line. By asking a series of questions and manipulating the way the dots moved, the researchers were able to tease apart the different components of the confidence computation that each study participant was making. So what we looked at is how individual experience at this given moment in time are brought together. 
And, and we found this particular area in the medial wall in the middle of prefrontal cortex, the frontal areas of the brain. That's also been seen in other studies that have looked at how people track performance. So other studies have shown that this area is also involved in when you're performing a task over time, it's also involved in performing how well you're doing across multiple decisions or across multiple events. This area of the brain seems to be important not just for your confidence in any given moment, but for tracking how good you think you are at something over time. So this area seems to be important not only for computing a here-and-now sense of confidence, but also tracking the environment and tracking your performance through time to give you a more general sense of how good you are at this task. So you can think of a task as made up of a series of decisions. You might be more or less confident about a given decision, and that's an important piece of information. But you might also need a general sense of how good you are at this task. So we know that our brains are making quick-fire statistical computations that help give us a particular sense of confidence in a certain situation. But it's still important that we can communicate that sense of confidence to those around us, particularly if we want to persuade somebody else. Dan points to a couple of reasons for this in evolutionary terms. There are the selfish reasons. For example, if I appear more confident, then you're less likely to engage in some kind of conflict with me. For example, people who appear confident tend to have more influence on how interactions play out. But there's also um, a less selfish reason, I think, and that is that when multiple people make a choice together, there's often a benefit to sharing our confidence and combining that information into a better decision. This is something that Eva Crocco and her colleagues have looked into. They're particularly interested in the relationship between the way we communicate our confidence and how correct we are, a bit like that confidence test I mentioned earlier. Part of the issue is that people's levels of confidence vary. Some express more confidence than others under certain circumstances. For example, Eva says research has shown that men typically tend to be more overconfident than women. We really wanted to look at how much you can rely on confidence as a signal or a cue of accuracy. And we wanted to test what in psychology is known as the confidence heuristic. So uh, usually heuristic is like a rule of thumb in decision making. And the confidence heuristic is basically using the level of confidence as a signal of accuracy in your decision making. Eva and her team set up an experiment to test this confidence heuristic in action, using a group of people divided into pairs. So both participants were told they had witnessed a crime and now had to identify a perpetrator from a police lineup of suspects. Before making their decision, they were each given a different electronically generated picture of the suspect. But one of the likenesses was much clearer than the other. The two people were allowed to confer about which suspect in the lineup they thought it was, but they weren't allowed to show each other their picture. They had to communicate their information, but also their confidence alongside that information. They found that in most of the cases, it was the person who had the stronger evidence, thanks to the better picture, who was more confident about their answer. Yeah, they they believed in their own accuracy, and they were also more persuasive than those with weak evidence. So they were the ones who named a particular perpetrator from the lineup first, and that first suggestion was usually the suggestion that was eventually chosen by the pair. So it seemed to have a really strong psychological effect, that very first suggestion. It communicates a lot of confidence. They did a couple of other similar experiments, asking people to do slightly different tasks. And what we found was a 
across this whole range of experiments, the people who were uh, given better evidence and had the better information, were more accurate, were indeed more confident, and then were able to persuade the other person with the weak evidence. And on the whole, that is really good news, because it means that, indeed, confidence can be used as a signal of accuracy, and it can be relied upon in everyday conversations. Eva was quick to point out that these experiments tested people in what's called a common interest context, a context where they had an incentive to work together to find the right answer. But in some real-life situations, this might not be the case, particularly in group situations where one person in a team might actually have different motivations to another. So you really need to consider basically what the other person is motivated by and whether they might have a motivation to fake their confidence in order to persuade you. Dan Bang has also looked into similar issues and the fact that on average, people who are more confident tend to have more influence in group decisions. And that can be very problematic because you have a lot of decisions are made by groups. And if you're not aware of the fact that there might just be individual differences in how we express our confidence, then you might discount someone's opinion, even though perhaps you should actually have trusted it, if you like. He's looked at what people do in this situation and found they seem to engage in a behaviour called confidence matching. That means that if you and I are making a decision and you're a bit more confident than me, I will tend to increase my confidence, you will decrease your confidence a little bit, so we sort of end up at similar levels of confidence. Dan gives the example of a boardroom scene from the film Zero Dark Thirty about the US mission to find Osama bin Laden. You really believe this story? Osama bin Laden? Yeah. What convinced you? Her confidence. You have this CIA boardroom scene, and then what the leader wants to know is how likely is it that Osama bin Laden is located in this complex in Pakistan. And then as you go through to different people, they offer their opinions, you quickly realise there's some kind of hurting behaviour, such that everyone says 60 or 70. Percent confidence. Yeah. And there are different reasons why people might do this. I might say something that's similar to what you said, because you might know better than I do, so I adapt my confidence a little bit towards you. But it also means that the responsibility is sort of diffused across the group. So we think that one reason why people engage in confidence matching is that it's a mechanism for diffusing responsibility such that you don't stick out and you don't become responsible for errors that turned out to be costly. Going forward, Dan says researchers are still exploring the role that culture, environment and social situations have on a person's level of confidence. There's a remaining question as to whether it's sort of nurture or nature as to whether some people are born more confident or if it's through the the interaction with the environment that they develop. Part of this is about how much the variation in people's confidence reflects the different experiences that they've had. So we sort of think of confidence as an interesting phenomenon because it exists at this interface between something that's private. It's an internal feeling that you have, but it's also something that you share that affects other people. So we're thinking about how do social experiences, the social side of confidence, affect your private feelings about confidence and the other way around. So where does this leave us? The research suggests that people who are correct generally do express a high level of confidence in their answer. But if you're in a group situation, don't necessarily always trust how confidently people express themselves before you follow their lead. There could be lots of other factors at play. That's Gemma Ware, one of the producers of The Anthill. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to this summer, 
why not try another from the conversation stable, in-depth out loud? In this podcast, we narrate long-form articles written by academic experts. Our latest episode features a piece by Rohan Deb Roy from the University of Reading on the battle to decolonize science. Here's a taster. Since its birth around the same time as Europeans began conquering other parts of the world, modern Western science was inextricably entangled with colonialism, especially British imperialism. And the legacy of that colonialism still pervades science today. As a result, recent years have seen an increasing number of calls to decolonize science, even going so far as to advocate scrapping the practice and findings of modern science altogether. That's In-Depth Out Loud, available wherever you get your podcasts from, or via theconversation.com forward slash podcasts. Now, back to confidence. Phrases like fake it till you make it, and the SAS motto, who dares wins, reflect the idea that the people who put themselves forward and act like they know what they're doing will get ahead in life. Certainly in the world of work, it seems like the most confident people are the ones that get the promotions and pay rises. But to what extent does confidence lead to success? Or is it success that breeds confidence? And how much can confidence compensate for a lack of the right skills to do the job? In psychology, there's a large amount of research that shows that when acting a certain way, such as being more confident, even if you don't feel so, will make you appear more confident in front of others. And in turn, you might even start to feel that way. That's Chantelle Gauthier, a psychologist at Westminster University. I spoke to her about her recent book, The Psychology of Work, for which she interviewed a number of industry leaders to discover what it is that makes organisations successful. While confidence is extremely important for encouraging you to step out and take risks, she found that successful people have the skills to match their confidence. Confidence and competence work together. So balance is important. Now we know that competence is positively related to confidence level. But if you're not very competent, the confidence will not carry you far. And this is exactly what a mathematician from Leiden University shared with me. He says, it's always good to project confidence, even if you lack it. Confidence can help you in a variety of situations that requires, in general, common sense. But when specific competencies are needed to carry out a particular task, he concludes, confidence won't get you far. Chantal identified confidence as an important trait in good leaders. But there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. Overconfident persons might struggle with putting risks and or rewards into perspective. So the issue of credibility is actually key here. And this was interestingly also raised when I spoke to the human resource director at Bank Santander, who says, if people do not trust leaders who have no faith in what they say, then they are not going to go anywhere. In other words, everything starts from integrity. Chantal says that the best kind of confidence is one that knows its own limits. It comes with self-awareness and the confidence to recognise your own shortcomings. So you don't shy away from your shortcomings. You embrace it. You work with it. You get people around you to potentially compliment you. 
So you don't see it as a weakness, but you see it as, if you like, something that you can develop to improve. And that takes some form of integrity, but also to have a certain humility around that. Now, it's well established in psychology research that men are more likely to overestimate their abilities than women. And when it comes to the workplace, they will assert themselves more too. I wanted to find out what role this difference in confidence levels might play in the gender pay gap. Does the fact that men are more bolshy than women mean they are more likely to rise up the ranks of a company faster? And are they more likely to ask for pay rises? So I spoke to Amanda Goodall, senior lecturer at Cass Business School at City University of London, who's researched this very topic. There's a lot of psychological evidence and evidence from other, other management and economic sources showing that women undersell themselves in terms of confidence, men oversell themselves. And that, that is replicated in so many different studies. It's incredible. But according to Amanda, there is evidence that this is changing as society evolves. It seems that as men and women become more equal, levels of confidence are balancing as well. So some examples, if men and women are equally confident about a topic, women and men have been found to both enter what we call a competition. So one of the things about women is that in order to advance, you have to ask, you have to compete. And women competing against men has also been, it's been one of the problems perceived by researchers against women, that women were less likely to throw their hat in the ring. But in fact, if their confidence about something is equal, then we also find that women uh, are more likely to enter a tournament, which means compete, say, in a leadership position or another competition. In a new piece of research called Do Women Ask?, Amanda and colleagues at the universities of Warwick and Wisconsin have found that, contrary to what was previously thought and what they were expecting to find, women are asserting themselves and asking for pay rises. But despite this, women are less successful at actually getting them than men. In 15% of the times that uh, women asked for a pay rise, they got one, but 20% of the time that men asked for a pay rise, they were successful. And this may sound like a small amount, but if you can imagine how that accrued over the career, it, it ends up being a big difference between the pay. Perhaps encouragingly, they found that women under the age of 40 were much more likely to ask and get pay rises at the same rate as their male peers. So it looks like there could be what we what we might term a kind of cohort a generational effect in men and women asking and receiving the same amount. We don't know that yet because it's premature. We don't know whether if in 10 years' time when they've carried on in their career, whether that parity is going to be the same. We don't know that. But that's something that we need to keep researching and we need to find out for the future. Clearly, confidence is not something that is intrinsically determined by gender. But societal expectations have a big influence on our confidence levels and the extent that women lean in, as Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg tells us to. And if you think about it, this doesn't really solely relate to women. This relates to all diversity. If you think what it's like for any diverse group that hasn't been represented, number one, and that's, that's had discrimination against them, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to take risks and fire off potentially blanks willy-nilly. 
you're going to wait, aren't you, until you feel really, really confident. Because when you get set back from going for a promotion or for, you know, asking for a pay rise, that has a, a big effect on your confidence and also on your loyalty to an organisation, actually. Similarly, Amanda points out that if you were born into a position of privilege and power, you're going to be more confident and doors are going to open for you as a result. And if you think about it in a class set, if you if someone who's gone to Oxbridge, for example, who's found doors open quite easily to them for many reasons, it may be talent, but a lot of it may have nothing to do with talent. Then, of course, those people, again, are going to be pushing against lots of doors, whether, they're, whether they've got the ability or not. But society does seem to be changing. Take, for example, the fact that assertive women were previously seen as being pushy or bitchy. Amanda pointed me to a recent study which actually found the opposite. This is a study by Bongiorno, Bain and David, and they, they found, interestingly, that assertive women are, are now found as likeable and influential when they're assertive, as are men. Their assertiveness is seen as a good thing. And in fact, interestingly, women who were viewed as being very tentative in leadership positions were unpopular both by men and women. So interestingly, I think there is a change there. Now there is an expectation by us, the people who are the followers, if you like, that we want our leaders, you know, I want our female leaders to be, and this is, this is men as well, assertive. Amanda's research also supports what Chantelle Gauthier was saying about the important balance that's needed between confidence and competence. Perhaps reassuringly, Amanda has found that organisations that promote people over and above their abilities do not on average perform as well. So confidence is important in us selling ourselves. It's important in the way that we communicate. It's got so many things about it that, that are important. But in terms of actually having real skills, real knowledge, real expertise, and that also goes with age. So just having a very confident young person, say, who went to Oxford, who then wants to try and change the world. That may be great, absolutely wonderful, and one wants to be encouraged, but we shouldn't be throwing out the older person with all the experience. Real knowledge, real expertise is really, really important to performance and to other people's productivity as well, actually. When it comes to the confidence that employees have in their leaders, Amanda's research has found that this is massively influenced by how much of an expert those leaders are in their field. We find that employees report far higher levels of job satisfaction and they are less likely to quit the job when their immediate boss is what I call an expert leader. And the reasons for this is that someone who has walked the proverbial walk, who understands exactly what it's like for a person who is, say, their subordinate, to use technical term, will know how best to create the right environment so that person can flourish. They know what good looks like because it's important that they are also good at that core business task. But they know how to assess and support you in your development. They know how to create the right environment. And indeed, we find that morale in departments where the the immediate boss is, is an expert is far higher. Clearly then, expertise and skill should underpin confidence. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves getting into trouble. But what about when it's taken to the extreme? Can confidence have a dark side? The conversations Holly Squire has been investigating. 
Roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen, before your very eyes, I will reveal to you something from your wildest dreams. Something to make all your problems disappear, ladies and gentlemen. I give to you the money box. Now this fine piece of machinery can print 50 pound notes using blank sheets of paper. Yes, you have heard correct, ladies and gentlemen. That's blank sheets of paper becoming money. All thanks to this marvellous bit of machinery, which is on sale here today for the small sum of £50,000. Hmm. Sounds like a bit of a con, doesn't it? How does the saying go? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. The trouble is, lots of people actually fell for this scam, which was a favourite of Victor Lustig, a highly skilled con artist from the country we now know as the Czech Republic. He carried out lots of scams across Europe and the US during the early 20th century and was infamous for being the man who sold the Eiffel Tower twice. Ooh la la! For the money box scam, Lustig would stock the machine with six to nine genuine notes for demonstration purposes, but after that it produced only blank paper. And of course, by the time the victims realised they had been scammed, Lustig was long gone. To find out more about what makes people actually fall for confidence tricks and illusions, I tracked down a professional magician to reveal all. My name is Gustav Kuhn. I'm the director of the Magic Lab at Goldsmiths University of London. Magic deals with some of the most fundamental psychological and philosophical questions, namely consciousness, deception. Magicians have developed really powerful techniques to manipulate people's experience and deceive people. By understanding the psychological processes that underlie these illusions, we can learn a lot about human cognition. And so in a lot of my research, I use magic as a way of learning more about the human mind. Gustav says that for confidence tricksters, what's important is getting people to believe they stand a chance of winning the game and that what they're being told is the truth. I'll let Gustav explain more. With a confidence trickster, so someone playing the three-card Monty, for example, where you present it with three cards and you have to find the red queen, which is flanked by two black cards. The trick itself, so the deception, the visual deception, that's really the smallest part of the actual con. The main part involves convincing spectators that they could actually win at the game. So confidence tricks and magic has really got much more to do with metacognition. So it's about your beliefs about what is possible. So when you're watching a magic trick, you believe that you'd be able to catch the magician. In the same way with a confidence trickster, it's your belief that you could actually win the game. And these are false beliefs. And it's really down to these false beliefs that both magic and confidence tricks work. So, just how important is being confident to a confidence trickster? Being confident in your own skills is very important, but the confidence, really, both in terms of magic and for the confidence trickster, doesn't necessarily relate to the confidence of the performer, but really to the audience. So, the audience needs to be convinced that there's a possibility that you could spot the deception or the trick. With the confidence tricksters, the key really lies in the audience or the players to be convinced and confident that they could beat the game. It's often, the deception itself is fairly simple, like the actual deception is really about playing with people's confidence. And so the way a confidence trickster does this is that they will often let people win beforehand. So you've got the actual person manipulating the game but then you've got lots of confederates as well so these are usually mates who will be standing around the trickster 
and they're constantly winning. And the player will often see others playing and winning at the game and therefore have a false confidence that they could actually beat the game. But we're not just talking card games or visual acts of deception here, because confidence tricks to scam artists and con men now have an easier way to get hold of your money. And it's called the internet. There's very clear evidence that criminals are targeting lonely older people, particularly those in cognitive decline, because they're an easy hit, an easy target. And even if you get caught, sometimes it's very difficult. In fact, frequently it's very difficult to prosecute because would the person that you've conned make a credible witness in court? And because they're in the early stages of cognitive decline, the answer to that is usually not. That's Keith Brown from Bournemouth University. He's been carrying out national research on financial scamming and has found that the scale of internet scams across the UK has reached epidemic proportions. And he says at the heart of it all is loneliness. To con a lonely older person, all you've got to do is build a relationship. All you've got to do is build their trust. And given that they're so lonely, they're quite open to building of relationships because any relationship is better than no relationship. So I guess fundamentally, we're just built as human beings to have relationships. And if you have no relationship whatsoever, a bad relationship is almost better than no relationship. And that's what these con men play on. And it starts with what's known as a sucker's list. You can buy on the dark internet, and increasingly even on the ordinary internet, lists of names and addresses of people who are older, vulnerable consumers. And you can buy the list and basically you've got your ready-made scam list. And criminals will trade these lists and they will then go and target those people. There's lots and lots of different sorts of crime and fraud, but one of them, for example, doorstep crime. Criminal gangs will buy a sucker's list of people and they will walk around an estate. The first gang will go around and they will mark the houses with a little sticker on the doorstep or on the doorframe or on the gate. And then a day or so later, the second wave of gangs would come along and they'd just knock on the doors of those houses they've marked up at. And those houses will be lonely older people living in them. And it will be, you've got a roof tile that needs fixing or a fence panel that's blown down or something that needs painting. And before you know it, a job that doesn't really need to be done anyway ends up costing 20,000 pounds because they build a relationship with that person and then start exploiting them. Keith says that many of the criminals involved in these types of crimes are getting smarter and are now spending vast sums of money to be trained by salespeople and psychologists. This helps them to know the right type of language to use and enables them to better understand how to win the confidence of the people they are trying to con. A new form of scamming that we've named recently is something called clairvoyant scamming. And these are a group of people, probably based in Turkey, but certainly outside of the EU. And they spend all day looking at online newspapers, particularly the obituary columns, and they spot that 85-year-old Gladys lost her husband of 50 years last week, and they make contact with Gladys, and they claim that they will be able to make contact with Gladys's late husband for a small fee because they are clairvoyant. And they will take money from that person up until the point where that person realises that Actually, they're not making contact with their late husband because you can't do that. And then when the person threatens to stop paying them, they turn around and say, well, because we're clairvoyant, we will cast an evil curse on you unless you continue to pay us. So just imagine your partner of 50 years has died. You're lonely, you're bereaved, you're very vulnerable. You're paying out hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. And now you're trying to put a stop to those payments and you're being threatened with an evil curse. 
it's not hard to see how things can quickly start to spiral out of control. It is literally sometimes a, what's the point of living? It's the sense of shame. It's the sense of embarrassment. It's the sense of not wanting to talk to anybody about it. How could I have been so foolish to have allowed somebody into my life, into my personal affairs, and to be a scam by so much money? Keith explains that one of the major problems with this type of crime is that the idea of con men or fraudsters doesn't really paint a proper picture, that this is in fact highly sophisticated crime orchestrated by dangerous criminals. So perhaps then, our idea of what a con man or fraudster is needs to change, because as we've heard, it's not just people playing card games or tricking people out of a bit of loose change, and these criminals are making huge amounts of money from a huge number of people. That was The Conversation's Holly Squire. That's nearly it for this episode of The Anthill, but before we go, we wanted to give a shout-out to some other great podcasts that feature academics and their research. First, Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia. In their July episode, they ask, what is sport worth? What is its value? Who gets to participate in it? And why do countries spend billions strutting their stuff on the international stage? Here's a taster. I think we saw in the case of China in 2008 with the Summer Beijing Olympic Games that China was, although it's a an autocratic country and uh, engages in large-scale systematic human rights abuses, it pulled off a very successful games that helped change the global narrative about China. All of a sudden, everybody realized that China is a very wealthy, rising country. That narrative was somehow visualized for the world in, a, in an extraordinary way. That's Trust Me, I'm an Expert from The Conversation Australia, available via theconversation.com forward slash podcasts. Another one you should check out is a podcast called Trump Watch Sussex, produced by the Sussex Centre for American Studies at the University of Sussex. In their next episode, Sam Solomon and Melissa Maluski will be talking to Irene Sanchez and Matt Cedillo of the Southwest Political Report about immigration, US politics from the Southwest, and the history of anti-Mexican racism. And last but not least, the University of Liverpool podcast, a regular show interviewing academic experts from their university. After the recent eruptions of Kalawa Volcano on Hawaii, their latest episode features lecturer Janine Kavanagh explaining how good scientists are at predicting volcanic eruptions. That is it for this episode of The Ant Hill. A big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you enjoyed the show, please share the love with your friends and do give us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>